Hi, I'm Iris Muller. I'm a certified rehabilitation counselor and a proud mom of two children, one of whom has quadriplegic cerebral palsy and is nonverbal. And I'm Alma Schneider, a licensed clinical social worker and the proud mom of four children, one of whom has Prader-Willi syndrome. In this podcast, we discuss the uncensored truth about raising kids with disabilities. Prepare to laugh, cry, and hopefully learn something new. This is Two Moms No Fluff. Hello and welcome to Two Moms No Fluff. We're so happy you're here. If this is your first time, we are so happy to have you. And if you are a return listener, we're, we're very happy to have you as well. Hello, Iris. Hello, Alma. Hey, Alma, today, again, an interesting topic and something that is uh, kind of close to heart. And uh, I think we titled it, Who You Can Trust. Mm-hmm. And in our journey, uh, you actually need the help and trust of the uh, I guess many people and it's a complicated process because uh, this is something that is really hard to do sometimes because our kids you know situation is really really delicate and our Mm -hmm. emotional situation at least at the beginning of this journey is very very delicate and of course that we have suddenly a lot more people involved in our lives Yes, and you need to learn how to trust professionals and um, I guess uh, power professionals and who you bring into your life and your child's life. And it's not such an easy um, choice sometimes and not such an easy process. And Alma, no. I know that uh, building trust is a long uh, process sometimes, but maybe you can tell us something about your experience with this. Oh, I have many stories to tell about the the trust journey. Um, and yeah, I want to piggyback on what you said that it's, it's really hard in the beginning, because this is a totally different kind of situation than just trusting people with your own personal information. Because when you are disclosing anything about your child, you're disclosing not just about you, but about other people, about your family members, about your child who has the disability, and it becomes much, much more complicated. So just want to put that out there to start, that it's it's not something that most people are comfortable with from the get-go. It really, it takes a while to figure out how you want to deal with your new situation. And it can change over time. You know, my child is 17 at the moment and yours is 13. So we've had a lot of years to go through this and to have different kinds of experiences, experiences where we've gotten burned, experiences that, you know, have made us really happy to share um, private information and that it's worked out, but it's, you know, you will learn, you know, if you're in those early stages, you will learn. So the first, you know, the first um, situation that I can think of I'll go way back to when um, Lincoln was born, is that we, because we were completely surprised when he uh, was born with a disability, we, you know, we had no clue. We wrote, uh, I was still in the hospital and I remember Brian wrote an email to everyone who was trying, you know, waiting to find out, did she have a boy? Did she have a girl? And he wrote an email that was very personal um, to a lot of people who were um, some close and not so close 
some were more work-related people, but he wrote a very personal email about um, the diagnosis and what was going on. Fast forward a couple of weeks, a complete stranger reached out to me on email and said, I just received um, information that your child has Prader-Willi syndrome and my daughter does too. And um, if you ever wanna talk, I, you know, I'd be happy to talk with you. And one might think, oh, what a wonderful email to receive. That's so great. I thought I was gonna die. <laughs> so this was my first experience of having my private pain and devastation. Um, uh, I felt violated. I felt completely violated that a complete stranger, I'd never heard of this woman. I didn't know who she was. Somebody, um, and I had no idea who this person was, contacted her and told her about our email. So I was, you know, grateful to the woman. I said, thank you so much for reaching out. Can you please, but I was hyper-focused on who the hell told you of yeah. this stranger? Who told you? And she said, um, I'm not sure. I, I had gotten an email from someone and I think she did know, but she was trying to protect, protect. that person because the person was obvi obviously trying to make a connection for us. Um, and the, the, the mom, I think it took, uh, you know, it's, it's a long, it was 17 years ago. So my recollection is that finally she, she told me who the person was. The person ended up being somebody that Brian worked with in the past, mm -hmm. not like a crazy close friend, but a friend. And she remembered that she had a friend who had a sister who had Prader-Willi syndrome. So this is where we have a, uh, you know, a, a lesson for everyone listening. Instead of her um, emailing that person and saying, I have a friend, a former business associate who um, just had a baby born with this syndrome. Um, I'm gonna, if, is it okay with you if I reach out to her and ask her if you wanna, you know, if she's willing to talk with you? Instead, she was trying to do the right thing. She literally took our email and she forwarded it to this woman. This was a very personal email. It was, it was very personal. And um, at that time, maybe I wouldn't have thought it was that personal right now, but having just gotten the news that I had, you know, that we, our world was, you know, in, you know, all of a sudden turned upside down. And let's face it, I didn't want to focus on the fact that I had this diagnosis. Instead, it was much easier for me to focus on this woman and my rage and my, <laughs> that she took our email and forwarded it. So I was on a mission to tell her off. <laughs> I'm just going to yeah. be honest. Yeah. And I told Brian, I was like, give me her email, give me her phone number. And he didn't want to give it to me. And he was being level-headed about it. He said, I'm sure she was just trying to help. She just, and I was like, I don't care. I don't care. Give me her email. Give me her phone number. He gave me her phone number finally. And I called her and I, you know, I, I don't even remember what I said, but that poor woman, <laughs> I, years later, I apologized to her. 
But I said to her, how would you feel if your most painful private moment was shared with a complete stranger? You know, I, I told her how I felt. Yeah. She, you know, she apologized. She said, I was just trying. And I, I said, I, you know, I don't even remember. I, I don't think I was like, you know, really going off on her, but I wanted her to know that she shouldn't have done that and that it was very painful for me. Yes. So that was my first um, experience of, of vi- it was like a violation, which goes along with trust. So I'll, I'll, I'll stop there yeah. and let you, you know, tell a story, but that was the, a real, um, a real eye-opening experience for me for many reasons. Aye, aye, aye. Oh, good one. I have to say, <laughs> yeah, good one. <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, because I, I'm sure everybody in this like ball game, let's call it this, yeah. uh, have a story like that in one way or another. And yeah. um, I, I was just uh, telling you about uh, uh, an experience my my son had. You know, he's a nine year old. And going to places and having friends from the neighborhood or other friends that already know of his sister and our house situation kind of with regards to uh, his sister, out him. Mm-hmm. And uh, at age nine, he likes to go places and not be kind of an ambassador to the disability community. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just, it's interesting to me how how that happens and the effect of like uh, private stuff of, of ours, uh, whether we're adults or children, how if it is shared before we are ready. Mm-hmm. How, how it can affect uh, our, our well-being and uh, mm-hmm. yeah it's a painful topic it's just uh, it is it's bringing me back it's bringing yes. me back <laughs> yeah a long time ago but it's still I remember that feeling yeah I, uh, I I'll say something that is way less emotional but still in the topic of trust um, I guess for families whose uh, kids have some kind of, you know, medical, <laughs> I guess, involvement in the early stages, there's a lot of trust issues with regards to medical advice. You know, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes decisions need to be made on the spot and uh, things that have uh, big uh, ramifications uh, that parents are kind of put in, in a stand that they trust medical professionals to make the choice for them or to recommend what's right and wrong. And uh, it's sometimes a painful reality to discover that protocol is just protocol and not anything and everything that is on the protocol is worthy of your child's suffering, your, uh, I guess, uh, time, money, energy, and uh, everything that it involves. And for us, I think the very first kind of few slaps in the face were just like, just signed an AMA against medical advice because you just, you you have to like be the barrier between what's good for an individual child and what's the general kind of, I guess our medicine in, at least in the United States is very kind of um, lawsuit protective. And -hmm. a lot of things that are kind of, I think are almost there to kind of protect the hospital and the the physician themselves are not really important or necessary for your child. And I think that one of the root awakenings for us was just that we, we had to, we had to be a barrier and to basically protect our child from unnecessary medical interventions. 
um, and that that's uh, that's kind of harsh <laughs> maybe to say like that but it's it's oh it's the, true the reality and uh, I think um, my recommendations uh, my recommendation maybe for parents in in this journey is to to always ask why at least three times and to always uh, ask for a second opinion sometimes even third and fourth mm-hmm. and to to know that um, you know again something that I already said today trust is something that builds you know yes. and if you are facing a new a new person you don't really know them their practice their priorities their personality you don't have to trust them even though they have like a PhD or a doctor next to their uh, last name yeah um, it's important Yeah. Yeah. So it, and trust is, you know, trust is so important to feel safe because again, you know, I always bring this up and putting on my social worker hat again, if we don't feel safe, we can't function because we have to, you know, be able to be calm and rational to be able to make important decisions. And if we don't feel safe, our brains won't, you know, if we have that kind of anxiety, we're not going to be able to think clearly. So it's so important that, especially at the beginning and at every difficult stage, you know, there are little crises that happen throughout our journey with our kids. And if we don't feel comfortable and safe, um, we're not going to be able to be the best that we can be. So yeah, moving right that's, along. Yeah, sorry. That, that is, I, I think, one of the things that makes kind of a new diagnosis so shocking and so mm-hmm. hard to deal with because they... Um, not, not that typical kids come with the manual like here is mm-hmm. what you do with your baby right. almost though <laughs> uh, but, yeah. but but with our uh, kids it's it's really kind of the big vast unknown that you need to explore on your own mm-hmm. and uh, and in addition that there's you know the figures that you think you can trust the experts and yeah. then when they fail you you're kind of like Oh my gosh, I'm drowning here and there's nobody to help. And it yeah. makes the whole first couple of years a big kind of like a confusion almost. Yeah. And you need to really, I call it develop your own spine because yeah. you need you need to kind of be the anchor for a family, which yes. is your family in this case. And for, for a child that really their physical and emotional health, health is totally dependent on you. Yes. And it's a, it's a lot to ask from someone who's, you know, <laughs> the floor was just taken from underneath there. Exactly. Feet. Exactly. And, you know, that brings me to my next, you know, little anecdote. Um, uh, in the beginning, in the beginning, um, <laughs> I had um, a, an early intervention team And I think I've mentioned this in a previous episode, I had this wonderful psychiatric nurse that was a part of the early intervention team. And I was asked by the caseworker, you know, what else do you need um, on your team? We have a therapist, we have this. I was like, I want a therapist. So I had this amazing woman that would come to my house and she would stay as long as I needed. I don't know if this is this exists anymore, but sometimes she would be there for two and a half hours. Wow. I'm going to say her name. Her name was Barbara Masterson and she saved my mental health. I spent so many hours with that woman figuring out and exploring and discussing who to tell mm. about the diet. 
I spend so much time on this because as you just mentioned, our kids are totally dependent on us. And what's different about coming out, you know, with any kind of a disclosure about yourself, that's, that's only affecting you pretty much. When you are disclosing things about your child, there is this added pressure of how is this going to affect my child if I share this information and if I share it with the wrong people or if I share, you know, so, and so much of that has to do with us and our, um, you know, we come to the table with all sorts of, um, you know, life experience. If we have been burned before by sharing private information, um, if people didn't come through for us when we made ourselves vulnerable, that's all going to have an impact on how we think about disclosing, you know, painful private information that makes us feel unsafe and vulnerable. So um, clearly I have had a lot of that in my background because I really struggled with telling people um, my son's diagnosis. The reason for that was because I've mentioned before, when you go online and you read about, um, or at least 17 years ago, when you read about my son's syndrome, it gave the most dire um, description of what he was supposedly going to be like. And some of it, um, you know, it rang true for the future, but a lot of it didn't. And to have a baby that is totally defenseless and innocent and having people find out the diagnosis and then Google it and think all these really, what I thought were just horrible things about my child who was going to be out of control and wild. And I saw it as him, you know, it presented a portrait of someone who was going to be like a wild animal that couldn't be in a space with food or they would attack the tables, um, which was not going to be the case. But I felt so strongly about um, people learning that information that I before they got to know him as a human being. And it changed for me when Lincoln had a personality and when he was able to interact with people and they could see that, oh, this is not who he was. But when he was an infant, I was the protector of the information. I was the, I had to make decisions. Do I let people know? And then they have these ideas about him before they even get to know him. So I felt so much pressure to keep it private and to contain the information and for us to have our own narrative. And it, uh, for years I did that. So I literally went out of my way to call people and say, people who were in the know to say, do not tell anybody his diagnosis. And as I've mentioned in previous episodes, I was very, you know, I would go out into the community and tube feed him. So people knew that he, I didn't have an issue with that piece of it. I had more of an issue with the behavioral issues. So it's one thing to have a feeding tube. It's another for them to find out that he has Prader-Willi syndrome that is, is associated with all these really societally, you know, negative, unacceptable behaviors. So I spent so much time talking about trust and with this therapist, um, and what she shared with me, you know, to this day, I really appreciate so very much what she told me, the guidelines. She said, the only people, this is your private information. This is private. This is not public. You know, people don't deserve to know your private business. It's not like you're keeping a secret. It's private. And there's a difference between privacy 
and secrecy. Secrecy is associated with shame and all that. Privacy is, it's none of your damn business. <laughs> and what she said was, tell, only tell people who can help you practically and emotionally. Hmm. And I, you know, at this point, I've added to that list of um, who can help on a greater scale, you know, in community and who can, who can take this information and, you know, be ac an activist as a result of me sharing my information, all this stuff. So I've added to that list of, you know, so now we are open about the information, but back then it was a great rule of thumb because if you don't trust someone to be able to help you emotionally and practically, why would you tell them? It's none of their business because that identifies people who you can trust. So that's that was a great rule of thumb for me. And I just wanna add a friend of mine sent me a wonderful article at this time when I was struggling with this about, um, it was from the New York Times and it was, if you wanna go back to it, I don't know where it is, but it was obviously from 2004 when my son was born about getting divorced and who you tell and what you tell when you're getting divorced. You're not gonna tell your whole story about your marriage that didn't succeed to anybody walking down the street. You're gonna have an answer for people who are acquaintances and you're gonna have responses for people who are close to you. And I so appreciated that her sending me that article. And, and back then, by the way, it was a printed article. It was not online because it was 17 years ago. But um, that, was, that was a really great rule of thumb. It was like something that was painful and personal. That's none of anybody, it's not anybody's business who's not in your inner circle. So that was, that's my next story. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was a, a hard to deal with story. I uh, thinking about Lincoln and knowing the the teenager that he is it's just uh, actually really hard to listen to to this and so unfair because for anyone who doesn't know Lincoln he's a beautiful charming young man <laughs> who's so gentle and delicate and good-hearted that it's just um, Alma I'm honestly in the name of society sorry that you had to go through this <laughs> thank <It's>, you yeah. <laughs> Uh, thank you for speaking on behalf of society <laughs> yeah no it. <laughs> it, it's just it's just it's so unjust there's so much pain and misery that can be prevented it's just it's just sad and um yeah. i i want to actually uh mention uh, a photographer whose name is rick giodadi and he i hope i'm pronouncing his name correctly he made uh, like a whole uh I guess, project of redefining disabilities and, and filming uh, families of children with disabilities and adults with disabilities and helping them kind of describe their disability in their own words and made it uh, such that it's a, a project that is meant to educate uh, new medical professionals. And this is so important because uh, unfortunately for many, many disabilities and syndromes, the videos and uh, you know, articles that you're describing from your own kind of self-realization and research about Prader-Willi syndrome specifically, this mm -hmm. is still the kind of horror, <laughs> horror scenario that medical professionals are exposed to. 
And yeah. with that knowledge, they're supposed to now meet and educate new families. <laughs> yeah. Horrific. So, yeah, I did uh, mention, I just want, if for people who haven't listened to um, some of our previous episodes, the doctor did say to me, he will eat anything that is not tied down. So when you have an infant and you imagine like an animal, like I imagined a dog mm-hmm. and that kind of sets the emotional stage for how I thought about the syndrome. So, you know, it's, it's how we're told the diagnosis as well has such a huge impact on how we feel about our kids and our concerns. Yes. Um, sad. <laughs> I, yeah. I wanted to say that for, for us, uh, the very beginning, um, we needed a lot of help, physical help, like uh, we were um, moving and we had uh, like financial needs and uh, suddenly a lot of medical needs for a daughter that required budget and uh, time. And uh, I think one of those, like, who can you trust <laughs> was built through asking people for help. And having this very, very unfortunate process of having the doors shut in her face yeah. multiple times by mm-hmm. people that were sometimes really, really close to us. And uh, I think that was uh, that was also like a very painful process in which we, we had to kind of, um, I remember once we were, uh, we, were planning uh, one of, of the moves. We we had uh, a few serious uh, job-related moves with, uh, in the first uh, couple of years of my daughter's life. And uh, we we asked uh, someone to come and help us. And she's like, uh, uh, no, I can't. I, I really injured my hand. And we we're like, no, no, we don't need any physical help with the move. Uh-huh. We just need someone to to sit kind of in front of our daughter who is quadruplegic and can't do a thing for herself and maybe uh, wipe saliva or just like play with a toy in front of her or put something in in her mouth, you know, just Mm -hmm. uh, for kids that don't have the ability, by the way, totally unrelated to explore with their mouth or bring things to their own mouth. You really need to help them with this because Mm -hmm. then they miss out on all of the oral motor development that is so important in the first year. So we would sit physically sit and like put toys in her mouth so she can kind of explore with her tongue and lips and all of that to kind of help Mm-hmm. with this and uh, so it's it's really easy and uh, like even like someone being there for a couple of hours instead instead of us like relieves yeah. us to to pack and move and, and do other things and uh, um, at the end of the day uh, wanting let's say in in the in this uh, case like a close family member to come and help with something like that we thought that it would be like really easy and something yeah. that it's like ah just like, come for a couple of hours and help us out but uh, it was the accumulation of like experiences like that with the same individuals that kind of like eventually we were like okay so we thought we had like five family members on each side of the family and we ended up counting and we only have two that actually would care and come and help and uh, it was uh, it was hard <laughs> I, I don't have how to say it but i want to to tell like um allies family members and other listeners or that are here that it's it's a an easy thing to say sometimes 
oh, uh, your daughter is invited. She can uh, come and uh, have a sleepover at our house anytime she wants. It's very easy to say. But have you mm-hmm. ever spent half an hour alone with my kid before you made this invitation? It's just like words are not yeah. hard to say. The yeah. actions are what, what's hard to do. And yeah. the actions are what accumulates into trust. Yes. And if we need to know that, uh, you know, someone is really on our side and uh, joining us on this journey uh, mm-hmm. on the early stages, it's, it's almost kind of like, A, ask how you can help. We already discussed that. Mm-hmm. And, and B, when you're asked uh, to, to help, like uh, show up, show up, even if yes. it's not, uh, n- not anything that is uh, dramatic or dramatic. doesn't sound important to you because what's uh, for example in that move store story that they just told you what that family member told us it's just just say uh, just pay for a nanny like you know just call a babysitter and uh, it was yeah it's simple enough but we are very protective of our child we just don't even today at age 13 it requires like three months of training for anyone yeah. to kind of like And stay with her alone but that that wasn't the the point it's just that uh, sometimes things that might be very easy for a person to help with are yeah. very very important for the family to not feel isolated not feel alone and uh, and to feel that their child is acceptable in a yes. way to others uh, when when we find it hard to To believe that others would accept our child yeah so when those doors kind of slam in our face it's not just the help in the move that was not happening right. there is a whole different level of implications to that uh, what does that mean that that family member does not want to spend time with our child with a disability What does it mean about us as a family? What does it mean for our child's future, et cetera? Anyway, back to you, Alma. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, we're, we're walking around hidden, you know, invisible trauma. Um, most of us, I don't want to speak for everyone, but not because of our child, but because of society. We're walking around with a lot of trauma um, and it's invisible. So these things take on much more meaning um, than, you know, if we were just skipping through life. So, and, you know, it's hard for the people in our lives also because they can't read minds and they don't know. And so oftentimes there's, you know, the onus is on us, the burden is on us to have to explain to them what we need. And I'm going to be brutally honest. It's painful to have to explain what we need. It's, you know, all the time. And it's a real, you know, there are a lot of conflicting emotions there because we would hope that it's obvious and we feel that it's obvious. Like, of course, we need this help. Of course, we need you to step up and, and follow through. If you say you're going to help and then you're not there, it takes on a lot more, you know, meaning to us than just you saying, oh, I can't make it. We need to know that we can trust people. And we're very, very vulnerable. And again, I'm speaking in generalizations. But um, a lot of us are very vulnerable, especially in the beginning. And we need, we are so fearful. We're so afraid. We're so afraid of isolation for ourselves and for our family members that we need 
to know who we can count on emotionally and practically. So if you say, it's sort of like a death when somebody dies, people always say, you know, when they're grieving, the worst thing you can do to a grieving person is say, oh, I'm going to call you, I'm going to do this, and then you don't. Because... Alma, you froze. People are in need. They're, they're counting. Oh, I froze? Yeah. So oh. repeat what you're about to say. Oh, I was just saying that um, it's like with a death. Um, when people, people who are grieving often say that, uh, you know, the worst thing is when people kind of show up in the beginning and then they disappear and they say, oh, I'm going to come and I'm going to, you know, support you and all this. And then they don't call, they don't show up, they sort of forget about you. And it's extra, it's extra painful because we're extra vulnerable at that time. So, you know, it's hard even talking about this in this, in this podcast episode, because, you know, we're needy. You know, most of us are needy and it's hard to tell people I'm needy. You know, it's not an appealing quality. Like we we're needy. We're dependent on you, but we are. And if you care about someone who's going through struggles, um, we need to know if you're going to be there. And if you're not, you might have to tell us. So what I was saying was that there was someone um, who, who was the recipient of one of those original of that original email about the diagnosis. And although we had a conflicted relationship in the past, she sent me an email or a letter saying, I'm sure you have people in your inner circle who will be able to help you through this. She was basically saying like, I am not, <laughs> I'm not going to be here for you. Yes. And I remember how devastated I was. I couldn't believe that she wrote that letter. But she wanted to make it clear from day one, like, do not count on me. You know, we, and I guess it was good at the time, but I remember how I couldn't believe that I received that letter. Every little, every little thing that was painful to me, like was so exaggerated um, because I was just like desperate for people to be there for us. And, um, you know, it's good to know who you can trust, even though it can hurt. You know, that was very blatant. You know, you're, I'm basically, I'm not going to be there for you. You have people yeah. in your circle. But when you believe that there are people who are going to be there for you and then they're not, you know, that's, it's, it takes a while sometimes to figure out who those people are. But once you find those people, so here's the, here's the, I guess, in a nutshell, once you find those people, you are going to be so grateful and you're going to be so appreciative of those people and they are going to be your lifeline. And you are, you know, if you don't have those people, um, you might be able to find those people online. You might be able to find those people, um, the least likely people, people that you have nothing else in common with. They're people that I trust um, implicitly, explicitly, <laughs> um, who who have nothing, you know, they're, they're much older than me. They're much younger than me. They, they might not have kids, but there's just something that connects you and that you can talk to them. And so find those people, you know, if you don't have those people, find them, um, yep. even if it's online, because we all need people we can trust so that we can make, you know, we can be happier people. Our kids will be happier. We will feel safer and we'll be able to, again, to make better decisions if we feel like our emotional, our mental health is is safe. <laughs> yes, yes. And I think this is also the process of learning that we all go through with this uh, kind of 
entry to the disability world, it's just a, one of those lessons is who you can trust. And by, by definition, the moment that you kind of let go of people that were part of your life earlier on and medical professionals and uh, part professionals that were brought into your life but didn't quite cut it, when you're finally kind of done with that screening process in a way, and your circle of people that are actively involved in your life is all people you can trust. You can only imagine how exponentially the, the well-being grows with that. Because yes. suddenly you're kind of everywhere you turn, there are people you can trust. And That's that right. makes life so much better and easier. So obviously uh, the, the, the early stages of like finding out that yeah, family members, it is very painful. When I read about it at the, I guess, first year in my rehabilitation counseling master's program, uh, there was a whole chapter about how family members ditch other family members if they become disabled or have a, per a child with a disability. I was like, what kind of families do that? Like what kind of ignorant, uneducated people <laughs> behave in this way? And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> now it's... Yeah our families. <laughs> Some so, people are just not capable of being there because it's hard to be there for us if you're not if you're not someone who's comfortable with yourself or comfortable with your abilities to help. Some people don't realize how important they are. And it's actually sad because the people who really step up are people I, I tend to notice they're more confident people. They're more secure in who they are and what their what their value is. And people who don't feel like they themselves are important or valuable are seem to be the people who don't step up because they don't they're like, oh, I'm not going to help. I'm not going to be able to help them anyway. Um, I'm not going to be able to provide anything for them. It's so well, everyone should be doing a little self self work um, on their self worth to, yeah. to, because everybody can be can be helpful. Everybody is valuable and has something to offer. Yeah. And yeah, and I think that at the end of this, Alma, when when as painful as it is, when you know that some family members just can't step up for you and some friends would not join you on to the next chapter in your life and you mm -hmm. let go and you welcome in the new friends that yes. are like ready and equipped, then then life is much, much better. And uh, and that goes for all life, by the way. That's not just for us. That's for everyone weeding out the people who are not there for you. I mean, that's just basic, you know, <laughs> common sense. And it, this situation, so this is part of the silver linings uh, episode. This is a silver lining. You see the, the quality of people in your life and you weed out the ones who really are not providing anything for you or that you can provide anything for. So it's, you know, again, that brings us to no fluff. <laughs> no yes. fluff. And Iris, I just want to tell you publicly, you are one of those people that I can trust and who is there for us. Yes. And same goes to you, Alma, especially in this pandemic. You know that in this pandemic, the one person who told me that if I and my husband are down with COVID and nobody is there to care for our kids, she would come and take them. That was Alma Schneider here. And uh, because of and you, those I weren't just words. It was yes, I know that was the truth. And because of you, I recovered so fast. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Alma, thank you very much for another kind of full of self-disclosure episode here. And, and to uh, you as well. 
and I hope, I hope people <laughs> These are, are hard. Yes, <laughs> the people so that are listening understand how hard it is to just oh, come out so. to you guys. I don't even oh. know who you are and tell you. All this is for you, people. <laughs> We're trying to help you so that you have a better, <laughs> more, more seamless experience than us. So thanks so much. Give us your comments and your you know, your stories in, in the comments. Um, we want to hear, we want to hear if you have some pe- people, if you have people in your life and you don't feel like you can trust them, you can, you can trust us with your stories. <laughs> Thank you, Alma. See you Thank next you. time. See you next week. Bye. Bye. For more information, please go to www.twomomsnofluff.com. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and give it a five-star rating so more people can hear it. Thank you.